Hello to all of you from David Thompson here from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. It's been a while since I last spoke because I had some things to do to help someone moving that didn't have any help and it was a far greater than average job with a lot of moving and a lot of cleaning. So that's the reason I haven't spoken a message for probably about a week and a half. And so today I will be sharing, but I first of all want to explain briefly to those that are new how I share these messages. The Word of God says in 1 Peter 4.11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And this is particularly referring to assembling together to meet with God as an assembly. Of course, it also would also mean for those that are believers that are seeking to edify one another, to allow God to speak through one another. And that is what I will seek to do, as to speak so that I allow and facilitate God to speak through me what he is saying at this particular hour and time to the churches in the United States, especially where there is the epicenter that is a time of great trying and trial that is spread around the world. I needn't go into all of that. Most of us know about all the terrible things that are happening if we watch such sources as frankspeech.com or americasvoice.news with the war room and so on. Highly recommend those if you want to be a good watchman over your community and over your nation. Well, to facilitate speaking as the oracles of God requires that we are those that are not just in our mind speaking out of what we know from an outline or notes. It requires that we are in a heart set and a mindset of worship. As it says in Revelations 19.10, worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, when we worship God out of a humble heart in spirit and in truth, in the genuine reverence and fear of God, out of that worship, whether it be in song or in whatever it is, comes the infilling and the overflowing of the Spirit of God. And out of that overflow comes utterances beyond ourselves that are from the Spirit of God. As Christ said, the words I speak are spirit and life. And so I pray that the words that I'm speaking are not merely from my mind, but come from that river of life that flows from the throne of God and that flows from the inner being of those that have truly given their lives to the creator of the universe, the one that is the very source of reality and of love and of life, that it would flow through me to you as I seek to speak out of a heart set and a mindset of worship. This is illustrated also in Second Kings 3.15 where Elijah um, called for a minstrel to play a harp before him. And as she played that harp, or he, 
he entered into worship. And out of that worship, the spirit of prophecy came on him as these two kings were at their desperate end, so to speak, because they were about to be annihilated by an army because they were in a situation where they had no water. And so he prophesied out of that worship. And so we need to seek to be this way. In fact, it should be practiced much among the whole body of Christ and especially by the leadership. In fact, it says in the last part of Matthew 24, blessed is that servant whom when he cometh shall find so doing. Doing what? Ministering to the sheep their due portion in the right time. In other words, we are to always be speaking what will truly bring life to people and will be the word that God is wanting to speak through one another. And so that is what I will seek to do today. And part of what I do to, is to facilitate that as I cast lots on the Word of God to get two different chapters so that I would know from those two chapters the confirmation, one chapter confirming another chapter. So I use one random application to get one chapter, any possible chapter in the Bible, and then another different one to get another any possible chapter from the Word of God. And so I put those two, and I look at those two chapters, meditate on them for half an hour, and copy a few verses or maybe notes, and that's normally how I give the message immediately after that meditation time. I preach in this case, it's different because I haven't been able to do it for a week and a half, so today I, in my half hour of meditation, went over all the different chapters I received by the casting of Lot that confirmed each other. They always do if we're walking right with God in spirit and in truth before him and do it with great reverence. God doesn't call everyone to do what I'm doing, but God led me to do it this way. And it is very obvious that it's way beyond coincidence that God is in it because time and time again, there is a very clear theme that comes out of the chapters that is also amplified as to what God is wanting to say to the body of Christ. The casting of lots, the word of God says in Proverbs, the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. And of course, it was extensively practiced by Moses, by Joshua, by David, by Solomon, many others in the word of God as well as powerful movements in church history like the Moravians that even used it for choosing their wives of all things. And these were powerful movements of revivals. I'm not suggesting that we do that. I'm just emphasizing it was used by the early church to choose who would take the place of Judas. So right now I want to begin to share with you what I received this week, and I'm going to go over and touch the various things that God was saying in the last week and a half. I won't be able to touch every single day, obviously. I'm just trusting God that he will speak and minister to me and to you as an individual and to your assembly. And this message is especially for the churches in the United States and where I am in Canada and around the world but especially for the, those that are facing the crisis with COVID, where there's been absolute tyranny and oppression, which I won't go into now, that has happened through using a health crisis as an excuse to allow 
draconian orders that are killing many people with the vaccine, and I won't get, get into that. So I'm just going to have a little bit of water before I continue here. And I also want to mention that before I get into sharing what God has been saying to the body of Christ, I want to also have a song that we sing, and this is also done by the casting of lots. And so I don't know most of these songs because I get them out of a hymn book of 1,080 songs from a movement I was involved with many years ago in the 70s. But they still have, are, are extensively in very many places and have this wonderful hymn book which involves many hymns throughout church history as well as hymns that were formed out of the underground church that was persecuted in China. And so I want to share with you that song and sing it with you today. And then after that, we'll get into what God is saying to the body of Christ and to you as an individual and me. So first of all, we'll go to the song. Like I say, I don't know these songs myself very well, but, and I certainly haven't heard this one, but... It's the words that are so important, and so we will sing those words. Now i got to just uh, begin this by bringing it back. Here we go. Yes, I completely would obey 
suffering may oppress. Lord, save and keep me as I forward press with Him. That no trials shall prevent me, no real opposition great. Lord, save and keep me as I forward Well, that was rather a short hymn, but I enjoyed that hymn. Thank God for it. And the privilege to, um, you know, just be in that place with God. And maybe while I'm thinking of that hymn, I, I see another hymn coming up here. And again, I don't know. I know it's from the same hymn book. Uh, but I think it would be maybe one that we'll just sing a little bit of that. I don't know what will come up on it, but it should be a good one. We'll just see. If we don't get advertising first. Blessed are those who mourn, for it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Not 
because it looks like it could go on for a long time. So it is indeed what we want is to be those that are so totally in love with God, like the woman that broke the alabaster box at his feet. May we break our hearts before him and our lives, pouring out of our time and of our energy, denying the things that we want for the comforts of our own life, pouring them at his feet like that costly oil that the woman poured at the feet of Jesus Christ. And so I want to now begin to share with you some of the things I received from the Word of God in the last week and a half. And so I bring up now before you some of the chapters that I received. And I go back to December the 3rd on Friday, which is a while back now. And I want to just touch on some of these at first as to what God is overall saying to the body of Christ. And uh, I received Colossians chapter 1 and Leviticus 17 that day. And what this theme is on in both of these chapters is the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we read some of the 
verses in Leviticus 17 here at the moment, and it says, And whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel and of the strangers that sojourn among you, that eateth any manner of blood, I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood, and will cut him off from among his people, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh atonement for the soul. And it goes on in Leviticus, and it says, Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, No soul of you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger that sojourneth among you eat blood. And whatsoever man there be of the children of Israel, and of the strangers that sojourn among you, which hunteth and catcheth any beast or fowl that may be eaten, he shall even pour out the blood thereof, and cover it with dust. For it is the life of all flesh, the blood of it is for the life thereof. Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall eat the blood of no manner of flesh, for the life of the flesh is the blood thereof, and whosoever eateth it shall be cut off. Now the other chapter I received by the casting of Lot in relation to Leviticus 17 was Colossians chapter 1. I want to just move down past these notes here, which I will get into a little bit before. And so we're just going to move down to Colossians chapter 1 here. I did do extensive cutting and pasting there, and here is the part that fits in with that. For it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell, beginning in verse 19, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether there be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, if Ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Now, I did say I would go through the various things I received this week, um, but I feel right now, before I go to the other things I received, to go into this a little bit, and explain particularly the verse that says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. The word for that word life there needs to be clearly explained. Because that word for the word life there is the word for the word soul. So it's saying the soul of the physical body is held there by the blood or is in the blood. The life is really your soul. That is another word for soul, is the word life. And in the Hebrew, it contrasts two concepts which are not found um, in the Greek and Latin tradition. The Latin describes the soul as the inner self as opposed to the outward appearance, or is viewed in a different context. But in the Hebrew, it is what the word soul is 
what one is to oneself, as opposed to the word name, which is what one appears to be to one's observers. So when you say in the name of Jesus, it is what Jesus appears to be to those that are observing him. And of course, he's talking about genuine in this context. When we use the name of Jesus, the word name is the very being of who God is to us who are believers. And in that reception of who the very being of God is, when we receive the being who God really is into our being, then we are receiving his very life into us, his very authority into us. The question is how receptive we are to the being of God. As unbelievers, they come to the place of true conversion and receive his being. As believers, as we've received Christ Jesus, the first time we received him and were saved, so the word of God says in Colossians, we are to walk in him. So the blood is very important in this understanding that the blood is what holds the very essence of the real you in your physical body. The very soul is held by the blood, and the blood is the, as it were, the communication or the bridge between the physical body and the soul. Now, the soul is the very source of choice. We are self-originating beings. We are beings that are free will. We're not robots. We are the source of our own action. A robot always receives its input from an outside source, which in, is human intelligence, but it is not the source of its own action. Oh yes, nowadays they think it can make robots that are supposedly having their own consciousness, but we know from science that that is totally false because I have a particular thing from some of the top scientists that expose how totally phony that is, which I cannot go into. It is in a book I'm writing, and it comes from a documentary that was done called Soul by BBC many years ago, I think in the 80s. And there's an interview with scientists there on that and how totally ridiculous that is and how man cannot even come close to creating robots that have their own consciousness. But the soul is the very source of its own action. It is therefore self-responsible. And it is only as we are the source of our own action that there's the potential to have genuine love. So God being love and being the very source of reality, which is from love, and the very source of life and of all that is good comes from that. Out of that comes life. And that life is something that is held by the blood. And so when in our soul we make choices, the bridge between the soul is the blood. The blood is holding the soul in the body as long as the blood is circulating. If the blood doesn't circulate, the soul leaves the body and the person 
is dead because they can't breathe, because their blood isn't moving, and so on. But when we make choices in our soul, then the genetics of the body affects through the blood the soul. And so if we make wrong choices, it affects the genetics of our body in a wrong way, and that also affects our soul, confirming it in a way that is against God and that is destructive. So I don't want to get into too much detail. I think the important thing I'm wanting to emphasize here, and that what God is wanting to emphasize, is that we are to be those that have such reverence and appreciation towards the fact that God himself, at this time especially, that is known as Christmas, although the actual Christmas now is known to be around March the 20th from recent archaeological discoveries. But this time, this season, is the time when we celebrate the great condescension of Almighty God and that he poured out, out of his love, his very life, his very soul in his blood on the cross. God himself so that we could receive cleansing of our soul from the distortions and the sin and the wrong vibrations and all of that that would send us to hell. And therefore, we should never treat the blood of Christ as a light thing. It should be something that we have such great awe and reverence that God would condescend and there's that old song that I love so much that I think is the most appropriate song for the Christmas season, although it's never sung in context with the Christmas season. I'll only sing a little bit of it to give you, to make you aware of the song because I'm sure many of you know it. And it goes like this. What condescension bringing us redemption that in the dead of night with not one hope in sight. God, gracious, tender, laid aside his splendor. Oh, stooping to woo, to win, to save my soul. Oh, how I love him, how I adore him. My breath, my sunshine, my friend indeed. And it goes on. The great creator became my savior. And that is what we are so filled with gratitude and thankfulness for. That God loved you as an individual so much. And the body of Christ that he would have someone that he could love for eternity. Enough to have suffered the breaking of his body, the pain in his body. The, which was represented in the breaking of the bread and the outpouring of the life of his body in his blood, the outpouring of his soul. He did it for you on the cross and for me. And God is wanting to emphasize in this time that when we repent before him, 
Let us be so filled with thankfulness that he's cleansed us and washed us from every sin and spot and blemish. The word of God says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is then that we are walking in the light as he is in the light and we have fellowship one with another. But if a person hates a brother or a sister, as it says in 1 John, or they have an attitude towards them that does not allow them to be received as Christ received us in love, then one must search their heart and repent. For it should be that there is such love in our hearts for what God has done for us in cleansing us that we show that same love and forgiveness to others so that we can receive them as Christ received us. Other words, are we really really seeing the greatness of God's love towards us in his blood and reverencing this blood that was outpoured, this blood that was from God and not from man. For it came from the Father. It didn't come from a natural father. It was the very blood of Yahweh outpoured on the cross for us in Jesus Christ, his Son. And for those that come from a background where they're not aware of the reality of Jesus Christ being fully God in the flesh, consider this, that Abraham in Genesis 18 sees three angels and he calls one of them Yahweh and he feeds them all food. And obviously Yahweh is God. Christ himself said that he is the I am that I am, which is the definition of Yahweh. The ultimate reality now, I tend to be a teacher, and I could go into detail on this, <laughs> but I don't want to. I just want to share briefly what God is saying by his Spirit. He's wanting a true repentance in us, brothers and sisters, so that we show such reverence and respect and thankfulness towards the blood of Jesus Christ, that we're not like those that would go into the world and consume the things of this world without thankfulness to God so that those things become an idol in our lives. You see, the children of Israel began to kill animals to be satiate their appetites, which represents us going in the world and partaking of the good things that God would allow us to enjoy in this life. But it also speaks of those, if they don't get rid of the blood in the animal, they would have been defiled and irreverent before God, which speaks of us partaking of the things of this world and making them an idol in our lives so that they control us and manipulate us so that we do irreverence to the blood of Christ. No, he's called, and in Colossians 1, what does it say again? I just want to emphasize this chapter. It says... And it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell, the fullness of God. And he made peace through the blood of his cross to reconcile all things to himself. By him to say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometimes alienated, enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now is he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death his blood on the cross so that you could be unblameable, unreprovable in his sight if you continue in the faith, brothers and sisters, grounded and settled and be not moved away 
from that hope of the good news. The good news that God loves you. The good news that he wants to love you throughout eternity. Oh, there's such a hope, a hope of eternal life. And I'm writing a book on the evidence of life after death. And I've been watching so many videos and writing on them of people that have died. And, and, and it's way beyond anything of this world to describe how wonderful this is. It, it, it is not even... As it says in the word of God, I has not seen near ear heard what God has prepared for them that love him. But he can reveal it by his spirit to us too. It says in that chapter. And I can tell you, if you look up Dean Braxton on the internet, he was dead, highly verified as dead for an hour and for 90 minutes. An hour and, and so... An hour and a half he was dead. Actually, it was an hour and 45 minutes, my mistake. Hour and 45 minutes he was dead. Highly verified is dead. And you share, you watch his testimonies, just look his name up, Braxton, B-R-A-X-T-O-N, Dean Braxton, with type in N-D-E, standing for near-death experiences. You will see that heaven is way beyond what you can imagine. We have such a wonderful hope, brothers and sisters. And so we need to be those that truly watch that our garments are spotless, that they're white as snow, that we do not allow spots and blemishes on them, that we do not have unconfessed sin in our lives, that we are those that are washed fully in the blood of the Lamb. For those that come out of great tribulation are those that have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's the trials that expose the weaknesses in us and the sins that come out of the deceptions of our own heart. But then we are refined from glory to glory as we repent. As the dross comes to the surface of the gold that is being smelted, it is skimmed off as we have faith in the blood of Christ to cleanse us. Don't let the enemy lie to you and say you're the dross, that that's who you are. You're not. You're a son and a daughter of God. All you need to do is plead the blood of Christ and repent specifically of the sin that you've committed, whether it's a sin of pride or a sin of hate or whatever it is. God will cause you to confess your sins to see them as King David said search me and know my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me may we always be open to the reproof of the spirit of God to expose any shadows and eclipses of deception in our lives that we may be those that come out of all of these trials pure and spotless and white as snow hallelujah and I want to go on and I want to share some of the other things that I received uh, this week uh, and last week. last Not this Saturday, but two Saturdays ago, I received Psalm 82 and Ezra 3. This is about God calling his people to come together as one man and not only individually to rebuild the altar. You see, in Ezra 3, they were rebuilding the altar and it says that they were in fear because of the enemies that surrounded them, but they still built the altar first before they built the temple. And God is calling us as his people to come before him 
and to rebuild the altar in our lives so that we truly lay down our lives not out of religious performance and duty like Cain, thinking that we can in our own strength bring our lives before God, but like Abel, who brought an innocent lamb and not his own works, a lamb that he shed the blood of because he knew that in the light of God's holiness, he could never stand. He knew his need of the mercy of God. And God is calling us to build the altar in our lives again so that we come before him out of the genuine fear of God. And I love to teach on the genuine fear of God, but if I get into it, it's an in-depth teaching. So I, I forbear to share too much. God is wanting us as his people to be those that have not a counterfeit fear of God, like Cain, who became bitter at the negative consequences of the holiness of God. What is the holiness of God? It is the integrity of God's love that will not tolerate what is contrary to love. Love being that quality that always chooses the highest lasting good over any lesser choice because any lesser choice would always have a measure of corruption in it. But God is love, and love is the very antithesis against corruption. It is the very opposite of corruption. It is the thing that destroys corruption and does not allow corruption. Corruption is against good, but God is the ultimate good, and he wants the best for us. And he wants us to know that eternal destiny in heaven where there is no corruption, as it says in Peter, where moth and our rust does corrupt. And so this integrity of love is the holiness of God. But one can rebel against the consequences of the holiness of God because the holiness of God requires judgment on what is corrupt, on what would lead us in a path that would bring us into torment and self-destruction. But if we get our eyes and all the suffering around us and the suffering in our own lives because of our own wrong choices, and we become bitter like Cain, then we begin to have a view of God as some dictator that requires performance to be appeased, which is a counterfeit monotheistic religion that existed in the pre-flood world in the city of Cain and that continued in the world after the flood in the first city that was built at Rudu which was built by Nimrod, and actually another one before Nimrod. And I won't get into that in too much detail. But Nimrod said, I will take vengeance on God because of the flood. He, you, you can re read the ancient clay tablet writings of Nimrod. He was in total rebellion against God. He worshiped the moon god. He, it was a monotheistic God, called, but it was related to the moon. Oh, isn't that interesting? And that went into the Babylonian religion, and it went from there into the Arabs and so on. No, what we have is a God that wants us to bring our lives, and he wants us to come into the genuine fear of God because it's only out of the genuine fear of God that we can properly lay an altar in our heart 
that is receptive to the mercy of God and to the being of who God is. God is love. But the first aspect of God's love is a love that is integrous and will not tolerate what is contrary to love. And out of that foundation is what is indestructible. For it is only that that could be the source of reality. For it is only that quality that could possibly be the antithesis to corruption. And any, and what is reality? Well, if you look up in a dictionary, the word truth is defined as reality or what is real. And you look up what the word truth Real is a reality in a dictionary, and what it means is that which is indestructible, immovable, absolute, and the only quality that can be that is this love that is integrous and will not tolerate corruption or what is contrary to love. And that is the symbol of the negative symbol in math, from which is formed the positive symbol, which is the symbol of the cross and was the last letter of the alphabet in the ancient writings way back 2000 BC and older and up to around 1500 BC. That was in the Hebrew. The last letter of the alphabet meaning sign or symbol. But I don't want to get sidetracked by these things. We are, God is calling his people to lay the altar in order to bring forth the spiritual temple in your communities in these last days. What is that spiritual temple? It is talked about in the New Testament that we are as living stones being built together as an habitation of God through the Spirit. The problem nowadays is that we are as living stones, but we're not built together because the altar has not been properly laid out of the genuine fear of God because the genuine fear of God is a choice to rightly recognize God in the integrity of his love, which is his holiness first. For until you see the holiness of God and recognize how good it is rather than becoming negative like Cain and having a wrong perception of God, you cannot know or receive the mercy of God. Once you innately recognize that God is good and that his judgment is right and that you deserve judgment, you can cry out and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and receive his love, his forgiveness and cleansing. And when that happens, then the living stones can be built together, not under some clergy-laity gap that hinders the fullness of the headship of Christ from inhabiting the local assembly, but a clergy-laity that is truly in the genuine fear of God allows the Spirit to move through every member of the body in the gifts of the Spirit and to facilitate every member of the body to function in prophetic utterance and in all the other gifts, whether it's a testimony or a song or whatever it is. How is it that Paul the Apostle in Corinthians said that God has so tempered the body together that he gives more abundant honor unto the part that lacks so that there should be no schism in the body of Christ? It is because in the body, when it comes together, where Christ is allowed to be fully the head and fully inhabit the body, God can pour more abundant honor onto those that are not looked up to as high or as being so charismatic. They're not looked up to. God pours a greater gift on someone that is not so attractive in the natural and charismatic to humble those that tend to be looked up to. Because it is by pride that comes contention, the Word of God says, and comes division. 
And the tendency for the church to be denominative and divisive is because there is not this genuine fear of God that would cause one to so greatly reverence the blood of Christ and to greatly reverence what God has done for us in his Son, Jesus Christ. So that we feel it's okay to have control over the congregation and not allow those people to be fully expressing their individuality. Oh, I could go in depth and in detail into talking about this. How many churches get into I was part of a movement that believed that they were going to become and they were seeking to cooperate with God to conquer denominationalism, but they became the epitome of a denomination. Why? Because they put their identity more in one another and in the leadership and feared rejection from one another and in the leadership than in their relationship with God. And so they became like a bunch of bricks that were homogenous rather than individual stones forming a beautiful mosaic of unity. God is calling his people in this hour to be those that return and lay the altar as they did in Ezra 3 in order to rebuild the spiritual temple in every community and city across the nation. I tell you, brothers and sisters, when we begin to repent of not limiting the fullness of the headship of Jesus Christ from inhabiting the local assembly, when we begin to see that, I tell you, brothers and sisters, you will conquer your community. You will conquer your nation. And this crisis that we see right now will be overcome by the power of God because you allow the glory of God in your assembly. This is what God is wanting more than everything. This is why this crisis is being allowed to corner you to that place like the children of Israel here. They were desperate. The enemies were surrounding them. They were desperate to see their temple restored because they we're sent into captivity, and right now we're experiencing captivity. We have, as it were, been sent into a place of captivity under an oppressive government in the United States and in almost every part of the world. This COVID thing has resulted in terrible tyranny. People, businesses are being lost. Multitudes are being fired from their jobs. 60,000 scientists have joined a group to fight against it now. God wants to bring the breakthrough in the church above all because that is the secret to bringing in the end time harvest is the restoration of all things as it says in Acts 4.12 whom the heavens must receive until the restitution of all things. Now brothers and sisters I don't know how long I've been preaching but as I continue here I want to share more and more about what he's wanting from you as an individual. He's wanting you to repair the altar in your life too, brother, and my brother and my sister, and to come into such a love relationship with Christ where you are not anymore hypnotized by the luring baits of the enemy that would try to manipulate your life into finding your little comforts in this world, let me tell you, there's nothing more wholesome, more fulfilling than the wholeness, the holiness of God. The holiness of God births wholeness in your inner being. 
What did Christ say? He said, whoever believes with their life into me out of their innermost being would flow rivers of living water. It's a belief from the heart that results in your life being becoming lived out in conformity to Jesus Christ because of the moral persuasion, which is the word for faith in the Bible, moral persuasion. Pistis means moral persuasion. Moral persuasion in who God is, in his holiness first, and in his love revealed in his mercy. And that love was always there even before he died on the cross. God always had in his being such an ultimate perfect quality that he could come down and be tempted as we were and obey the Father without sin to the very death on the cross so that you could become the second Adam instead of the first Adam. The second Adam was made a life-giving spirit so that you would be filled with such love that you would bring life to others and you would learn to wash your brother's feet and love them even if they're difficult. What does it say in the Song of Solomons about the body of Christ in typology? It says we have a sister that has no breasts, but we love our sister, and so we will build around her beautiful frames of gold. Yes, the ones that are least in the body of Christ end up having the more abundant honor because the body of Christ comes to such a place of love for God and for one another that they bestow more abundant honor onto the part that lacks and not only the Spirit of God. Yes, every valley shall be filled and every mountain brought down and the crooked places made straight, and the rough places smooth. Then all flesh shall see the glory of God. Yes, Christ prayed it in John 17, that they would see this oneness, and that when they saw it, they would believe. And I can tell you, we are living in the time when God is getting ready to do it. Will you be the one that is going to be part of it? Or will you allow yourself to be deceived by the lying vanities? They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy, it says in the book of Jonah. Let us not be those that continue to be those that are not in a first love. Let us be those that have the extra oil, as the song that we sang said. Let us be those that say no to the enemy, as the song said that we sung. And always say yes to the Father, not out of religious duty, or out of performance, but because we're captured by who God is. His love is so great for you, if you knew how much he loved you. If you really saw it from your heart by revelation, would you ever, ever want to sin? And yet so many of us, including myself, time and time again, have found those little lapses where we get distracted by the little foxes that spoil the vine. Brothers and sisters, I want to go on and just touch on some more things that God said throughout these weeks. On Monday, December the 6th, I received John 9 and Joshua 22. The theme in these two chapters is the cause and correction of wrong judgment. In the case of the Pharisees in John 9, they did search out fully whether the miracle on the blind person was valid or not. The answer of the blindness exposed the absolute hardness of their hearts against God to ignore the truth for their own kingdom and glory. The Pharisees were more interested in their own kingdom and glory. They were worried 
that Christ would become the center of attention and would take away their own hierarchy, which provided them such a comfortable living and life and people looking up to them and calling them and giving veneration towards them. And they had lost their relationship with God and desired the glory of people more than the glory of God. And Christ said, how can you believe that seek glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God only? You cannot believe in the one true God if you're seeking glory and you're worried about what people think about you and you're worried about whether you're received by this person and looked up to by this person. You should be only desiring to be looked up to by God. He will justify you in his time. Christ also said that the man was blind, not because his parents had sinned, but that it was foreknown by God that Christ would perform this miracle so that God would be glorified. So that's what's happening in John 9. But the Pharisees rebelled against a very clear witness of this healing. As the blind man said, you should know that a man that is a sinner cannot do this. If he's living a righteous life and he does these miracles, he must be of God. And the Pharisees were so proud. Do you teach us? And cast him out. Now the other chapter here on the theme of the cause and correction of wrong judgment is in Joshua 22 where the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the tribe of Manasseh after they conquered the land went back and began to build an altar on Jordan with a that the rest of Israel perceived as being idolatrous. So they thought that they were committing idolatry. So they were ready to go and destroy the Reubenites, thinking that, but they sent their leadership there, representing each tribe, to find out why they built this altar, thinking that they were building an altar that was idolatrous and discovered that it was because they were concerned about the fact that since they were on the other side of Jordan, that Israel might in time begin to say, oh, you're not part of us. And so they built this altar as a memorial to remind the children of Israel on the other side of Jordan that they are part of their tribes. And so it is that the enemy would alienate the body of Christ through those that are presumptuous to assume by outward appearance what other brothers and sisters are without searching out. If we have the love of God, we search out what a brother or sister is expressing in their lifestyle or in their confession of beliefs before drawing conclusions of judgment and dividing ourselves from one another. How many times brothers and sisters think another brother and sister is thinking certain things about them that they're not thinking about them? I've had it happen to me many times in my life. I thought, well, why are they looking at me this way? Or why this or why that? And so we draw our own conclusions that they don't like us or that they are not right with God or that they're persecuting us, but we don't go to the brother and sister and get to know them to see what they really are like. And so it is that we cause division because 
there's not the love of God in our hearts to reach out and bridge the gap, which God calls us to be restorers of the breach, repairers of the paths to dwell in. And so, brothers and sisters, he calls us to love one another and to reach out because love will reach out like with the children of Israel. They came, they searched it out and discovered that really it was a good thing that the tribe of Reuben and the Gadites and the Manassehites, or the tribe of Manasseh was doing in order to stop division. And so it can be that some people are even being used to overcome division and are misunderstood in their attempts to overcome division. I have been to churches that thought because I was telling them about um, other ministries and telling them about the ministry that I had that I was drawing sheep away from them. And they were all upset and thinking that I was trying to take a sheep away from I had no such motive. I was just telling them who I really was and what was in my heart. But this is the denominative mindset, and we need to repent of it. It, is a, it comes out of hardness of heart. And hardness of heart comes out of the loves of the world. For the word of God says that if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. Brothers and sisters, again, God is calling us to repent of a denominative mindset. And you that are denominations, you can, within your denomination, take off the shell of that denomination so that the fullness of the headship of Christ can come and inhabit your local assembly. God is calling us to repent in these, this last day of these things. I could go on here and I could mention a lot more that I did in this particular one on the Reubenites. And so I say here, it is the fear of God that brings right judgment that looks beyond the outward appearance. It is out of the fear of God. This is very plainly shown in the following scripture in Isaiah 11, 2 to 3. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of God, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of Yahweh. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. What is, what is it out of? It is out of him being of quick understanding in the fear of Yahweh, the Almighty's one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is out of that. And so when we turn to the genuine fear of God, we will not be so proud and presumptuous to judge our brothers and sisters and to have a denominative mind that is hard and rejects certain people instead of receiving them as Christ has received us. We will inquire. We will get to know them to see if it is true what we are in our natural mind thinking 
It might be like it was with me. They thought I was trying to take sheep away when I had no such motive. I just wanted to love them, but they were a denomination and had a denominative mindset that God wanted them to repent of. And sometimes when we go into situations like that, we will be misunderstood. The question is, are we going to get offended that they've judged us and that they've rejected us? Or are we going to pray for God to give us grace to still love them and to still go there and clear up that misunderstanding? That's what God is calling his people to have. And that comes out of the genuine fear of God, which lays a right altar in our hearts to receive the full grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ and his body broken for us. Oh, how good it is to take of communion continually. Now, I could go on and on because then I received on Tuesday Joel 3 in 1 Thessalonians 1. Well, Joel 3 is on the nations turning back to God. I'm going to skip some of this for time because I know that I've been going on preaching for some time. I'm going to go to some other chapters here. Uh, Wednesday was Second Kings. Sometimes I get cast because I don't see right away how the chapters fit. I give up. And I, in this case, I cast for three chapters, but then I saw how the other chapters fit, as I usually do later on, end up with three chapters. Um, so here I just say this, and I'm just going to read what I said here. I this is where there's really showing the idolatry in the nation of Israel in 2 Kings 21 and Jeremiah 3. And so I said this in regards to those chapters. Why is the first commandment so strong against having any graven image? It is easy to love what you can see. It's easy to love a wife, but God's calling us to love him when we can't even see him with our physical body. Yeah. It is the first commandment. However, the purest form of love, which is agape love, is not a love towards the visible because it is way beyond physical attraction. It is a quality far higher. It is beyond self-seeking fulfillment. It is always choosing the highest good, which is beyond the immediate any lesser choice than choosing the highest good has corruption in it. But love always chooses, agape love always chooses the highest good over any lesser choice. It is a love that mere, it's not a love that merely feeds on temporal fulfillments in the soul or the self. And therefore is subject to deviation in the direction of corruption. The beauty of God is revealed when one learns to love God, not because you see God, but because of who he is in the quality of his being, which is invisible in the natural. The tendency for Israel to fall prey to the worship of many images gives them a sense of self-control and feeds the self. Just like Eve was taken by the beauty of the fruit, believing that she could become a god of great power. So false religion gives you things that are temporal, whether it's the self-glory of man or some experience that you can have that you would feel power like a god. Baal Peor, that deceived the children of Israel, was called the god of the opening. And of course, Balaam 
had the opening of the open visions, and so they believed in these open visions and so on. Well, the New Age does too, all of these things. And so they can appeal to becoming like gods. And then you have all the sexual beautiful immorality that goes with it. Well, the same with Eve. The Lord emphasizes that day will come when Israel will call him their father because they will enter into intimacy with God that is everlasting. So that's also in these chapters. Again, it emphasizes over and over, in that day you will call me father. In that day you will call me father because you will enter in to intimacy. You will know the secret of intimacy with God, which is out of the fear of God, which is that right perception of God and his love in its integrity from which issues love in its mercy and grace. The mercy of the Lord endures forever because it comes out of the holiness of God. And so I could go on and on sharing about this. They will return in the last days to the genuine fear of God. It says in Jeremiah in this chapter, and I don't know if I copy the verses down, but it says in this chapter in Jeremiah, which I think if I go back here to tell you the chapter, is Jeremiah chapter 3. <clears throat> it says there that in that day they will no longer be looking for the ark of God, even though the ark has been discovered, and I could go into that, but that's kind of sidetrack. But they will rather be only wanting God himself in his presence and that Jerusalem itself will be the very throne of God. Instead of the ark being the throne, the whole city of Jerusalem will be the throne of God where his presence dwells in the last days. Yes, you can look up John White and you can see all about the ark and when it was found and the six people that died when they went into the tunnel to try to look at the ark and you can see the photographs of those dead bodies being pulled out. Yes, it's true. It's kept top, top secret by the nation of Israel. I don't have time to get into all of that. But in the last days, they will just want, be in such a love relationship with God that the whole city will be filled with the glory of God, not just the ark. So they don't need to search for the ark or to be at the ark to be where God's presence is like it was with the nation of Israel where the cloud of glory came down over the ark because they as the body of Christ will become the very ark, the very dwelling of God, the marriage of the bride with the bridegroom. Now the other chapter was on 2 Corinthians 9 which was about giving. And of course the second Adam is made a life-giving spirit. And I talked about that a bit earlier. And so that is the understanding there in those two chapters. Is that out of coming into this intimacy of God, we are brought forth as a, the second Adam, as a life-giving spirit. Now I go on and here are the verses. I won't read them for a time. And quickly just touch on the other things I received. I thought there was no relation between Job 12 and Micah 2 till I looked at it today, so I didn't make any notes on it. All I can say is I did find a relationship there, and it basically has to do with the, the last things I received this week 
are an emphasis on the enemy coming against us very strongly and accusing us and trying to bring oppression on us. And this is what happened to Job in Job 12. He was being accused by the enemy through brothers and sisters that probably had good motives and good intentions, but they were just judging by outward appearance. They were not searching Job out as they should to love him. They became his judges wrongly. And so they were judged by God and had to bring an offering to be reconciled back to Job, except for one of them, which did bring not a condemning, but a right judgment about Job's situation. Three of them were judged, and the fourth one, I forgot his name right now, I think it was Elphaz, was not. Now, we see Job, and then we got Micah 2, and Micah 2, again, is about severe judgment coming on Israel because they buy into all these false prophets and so on. But at the end, it says this. It says, If a man walking in the spirit and falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and of strong drink, he shall even be the prophet of this people. I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Bozrah, as the flock in the midst of their fold. They shall make a great noise by reason of the multitude of men. The breakers come up before them. They have broken up. They have passed through the gate and are gone out by it. And their king shall pass before them and the Lord on the head of them. What it's saying here is that in the last days, Israel will come together in such a unity that the Lord will go before him and he will break through the barriers of the enemy. He will break it down and the Lord will go before him as the conqueror. Of course, that is said in the context of when they were deceived by false prophets. And of course, the other things I could go into, but I don't have time. There's That day I, I did another set of verses which also fit in with each other and confirm one another. But I just don't want to, for time, go into it. I'm just going to go to the last day, which was yesterday, Saturday, and point out what God was saying from 2 Kings 11 and Obadiah 1. I've got Obadiah 1 many times, and I've wondered why. Well, Obadiah 1 is about God's day of judgment coming upon Edom, and Edom represents... Um, the nations that are surrounding Israel. In fact, all of the people that are now from the lineage of Edom are basically surrounding Israel and are the ones that are seeking to destroy Israel. And so this is describing the destruction of Edom in the last days. And indeed, God is getting ready to do this. He is getting ready to bring the heathen together against Israel that he might bring his judgment upon them. And so it says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. 
and the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken it. And then lastly, I received 2 Kings chapter 11. And this is about Athaliah, who was killed all the royal seeds so that she could be queen over Israel. She killed all of them, but she didn't know that she missed one little baby boy, which was hidden. And so this little baby boy was preserved by Jehoiada, the high priest, for six years. And in the seventh year, he called the captains of the guard and all the army to surround the king. And they began to sing and shout that he was king. And this wicked, idolatrous queen Athaliah came in and she saw them shouting and said, treason, treason, treason. And then they chased her out and killed her on her way through the, to the king's court through the way that the king's horses come. And this is a picture in the last days of the deliverance that God wants to bring in the United States. We have had an election that was stolen, which is represented in Athaliah. This election was stolen and is represented in Athaliah. And so it is that in these last days, God is wanting to bring deliverance to the United States. And he is speaking today, this was given yesterday, that he is going to raise up someone. There is going to be deliverance raised up, even possibly hidden as it was in the case of of Jehoiada, the priest hiding the king, Josiah, who took the place of Athaliah, this wicked queen. So we as brothers and sisters can be encouraged that God is getting ready through this terrible dark backdrop of darkness and of captivity and oppression that is in the United States and has happened around the world to bring forth his deliverance because we as his people are choosing to turn back to him and to become his bride church. And in closing, I want to share this. That I have a book called God Headship in Body Invasion. And this book shows everything that you need to do to bring into your congregation a facilitation that will not limit the fullness of the headship of Jesus Christ from inhabiting the local assembly. And so, God is calling us to um, take heed. And I ask that you would support me by getting this book. That you would support me in my ministry. And I know there's much in here that you would find extremely helpful I go into tongues, I go into, you know, doing communion, water baptism, many details, but many things that are important. Yes, there's many suggestions that are just suggestions, but it's a call for God's people to become his house of prayer and holiness. And I have one other book, which is an evangelistic book called Evolution Delusion, which you can also purchase, super abridged edition. The other editions will come in the future. 
But uh, you can, in the meantime, go to ultimatemeaning.com where there's a flip book that has quite a bit of what this is in, in this book with links to YouTube videos that you can use for evangelism to your friends. So thank you for listening to this message and God bless you all. Thank <laughs> you.